Uh, I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think maybe, or a week ago, uh, we're going to start a new series uh, for next year. And this is kind of an introduction into it. This is uh, what we call in Whole Life, Whole Bible. There's a book on it as well, uh, and we're going to kind of be following the verses in that. Uh, it's not a chronological or a whatever other method you might want to choose about the Bible, uh, but what it does do, it tells us about the whole story of the Bible in effectively 50 sets of verses. Sometimes we'll have a couple of verses, sometimes we'll have 10, whatever. But uh, the point of Whole Life, Whole Bible is to really show us the whole story of Scripture and how it all fits together. Uh, and hopefully what this will do is to encourage us to read in the context and around the Word that we'll be looking at every week uh, and look at what God's saying to us. Uh, and I always encourage you to always check what I say, always read the Word, don't be uh, automatons, uh, read the Word, come and talk to me about it, if you think that something I've said is not right, I'm open to challenge. But equally, if you do that, I will challenge you. Just to give you a warning, okay? That's fair, isn't it? That's, that's fair. If you come to me with something, equally, uh, I will challenge you with something. But together, we build each other up. That's the point of studying the Word, to encourage and equip one another. So what's this story of life all about? Well... The Bible, in case you didn't know, is an account of not just historical events, but how God reveals himself in Scripture, how he works, who he is, and why he is. The Bible reflects a crucial principle of how we are as people and how we are to operate today. When people interact with people, the one thing we always do is share accounts and moments in our lives with each other. Life without telling each other of our life experiences would probably be quite boring. And you'd probably call it pretty British. Because what would we end up doing if not just talking about the weather? Isn't it nice out today? How was your week? Actually, the story of the Bible is a load of people who are working for God and who sometimes fail and who sometimes succeed because of their imperfectness. But the Bible is here to tell us that that's life. That's how Christians live. That's how we try to serve our God in the best way we can. And grace gives us the room in error. And we can come back to God and start again. The Bible reflects an amazing quality of God's creation in us. God created us continues in however that manifests itself. But God's creation continues to create. Drives us to want to seek more than the stated facts of who we are. Hopefully, we want to ask questions about our life and say, is it enough that I've just, I just live my life? Is it enough that I am born, I live, I die? It's not enough for me. I saw a program recently, it was on over Christmas with Brian Cox, and he talked about the universe. And it's a fantastic uh, science, when there is science in there anyway. Uh, and then there's other moments where he speaks about, I believe it was the planet Venus, and he said, when, the, when they were forming in the universe, 
uh, one planet hit another planet, and it create, started creating other planets, this knock-on effect. But after he explained that, and they showed fancy computer graphics of how it might have looked, he said, the issue with the theory that one rock hitting another and creating this universe was that each rock had to hit the other rock very specifically. Otherwise, it would have failed. And, and I've heard him speak, and he doesn't, he's not a believer in any way, but there was constantly through this program this sense of if something didn't go this specific way, it, this would never have happened. Life on earth would never have happened had this not happened in this very specific way. And you're looking at the TV and I'm thinking, Brian, please come to the Lord. Can you not see there is a creator God behind this? Luck is not that good. It just cannot be based on luck. But God in his creation instilled in us a desire to want to understand the deeper aspects and implications of who we are in a very spiritual sense and how that spiritual and physical uh, need is met. Genesis helps us to understand our relationship to the world, to each other, but most importantly, how we relate to God. It tells us that God came to the conclusion, if that was such a thing, I don't know how his mind works, we would say conclusion, that everything he made was good. He said it was good at the end of every day. So it's good. The universe, man and woman, and every material aspect of the world was good. Is good. The Bible reveals to us how we're given the will to decide between good and bad, right and wrong, and the simple act of corruption in the world by us in Adam and Eve, as a principle, shows how we desire ourselves as creators and being gods of our own destiny, to coin a phrase. The fall of Adam and Eve shows us our ability, our ability to have this free will to choose whether we are our own gods or whether we believe that God is who he says he is. Genesis 3, verse 4 to 5. says, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And in fact, rather than being gods of our own destiny, we, are, we were and are, from a lost point of view, to become humans of our own downfall in God's creation as we make ourselves and elevate ourselves and attempt to elevate ourselves above God, we actually create our own downfall. But today the Bible reflects the consequences of those actions and the strange relationship we have with the world and each other. Envy, greed, pride and anger are key outcomes of a world that has chosen to worship itself rather than the creator God. But God still loves his people nonetheless. Grace abounds so that even in the worst of our behaviour, grace exists so we can return to him. Should we choose to. And this is despite the continued attempts by us to sometimes damage or destroy that relationship. God tells Abraham that he will make a promise to him 
in a new covenant. Genesis 17, 3-8, he says, Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. We sing the song, You Never Let Go. Remember that song? Oh no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. But maybe when we sing that song in the context of the journey of God's people after this covenant, I hope we can find a way to agree with its biblical principle that God never lets go. When you think of the journey of God's people, despite their attempts to run themselves, God never let go. Through the karma, through the storm, he never did. Non-believers might ask, didn't God break that promise when he allowed people to die or suffer through that whole journey into the promised land? The Bible is clear on this. The last of the verse that we just read, it says, I will give you, give an, as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Maybe something that's uh, overlooked here is that this last few words, I will be their God, is not automatic. It does not mean that God forces himself on his people. It means that his people have to choose him. And when they choose him, he will be their God. And when they choose him to be their God, they will get the possession that he wants to give them. So when God's people decide not to make God their God, then they would not have everlasting possession. This is shown in Numbers 14, 21 to 23. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory in the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised and on oath to their ancestors, no one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. You see, there's no automatic, you are my people. There has to be a response back to God that you are my God. God made a promise that through the generations that he will be their God. So it is not God that gives up on the promise, but us. And we still do this today. We still give up on the promise that God has for us. The Old Testament is full of countless attempts by God's people and ultimately us who are now also God's people through Jesus Christ to move away from and worship or idolise something else. It is also full of accounts of God's people coming back to a gracious and most understanding God who are given the right to come back to him by him. Numbers 14, verse 24, the very next verse, says, But, grace kicks in, 
But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, you know what this means? This means he decided with his heart as a whole person to follow God. Because he decided to follow me, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. This is where we come in as well. Are we wholeheartedly trying to serve our Lord? Because you can take this principle, and we don't have promised lands anymore, but certainly if we want to see something happen here, and we want to see the community come, then don't we follow God wholeheartedly? If we want to see the outcome and the fruit of what God's got for us, surely we must lay our lives for him and live for him. All this to say that this whole journey is leading up to an ultimate redeemer. This is where it's going in Jesus Christ. Because we live in a broken world, broken by us, in our attempt to rule it for our own desires, the ultimate sacrificial lamb was required to call people to God through Jesus Christ. The only way humanity can be rescued from sin and its consequences is through restoration. The restoration itself that required the sinless God in human form to die on a cross so that we could have a new relationship with our God. Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10 as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by work, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Don't normally quote verses that long, but we have to look at the context. If we're going to do whole life, whole Bible study, then we have to look at the context of verses. We have to know what we are reading. So not only has our relationship been renewed, we are then called to show in the coming ages the grace and kindness of Christ Jesus in the works we are called to do by God. So as Christians that belong to this church or any church, it is important that we're aware that we're no longer bound by the religious institutions. We're no longer bound by being religious but that ultimately we belong to the church of Jesus Christ. 
We are an international community of believers. But we're also a local community of followers. What we do here is for the kingdom of God. As much as churches in Asia or churches in Africa or wherever they are do their job for God or their work for God there as well. Wherever we are, we are the temple of God's presence with God's law written on our hearts. But until the new resurrected bodies come, we are being sanctified. We are being sharpened. We are being matured, tested, so that we are training for the day when we meet the Lord. Sanctification is an ongoing process where we're changing our character. Every day being restored on the way to our identity, being fully complete in Jesus Christ. I've got a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's quite long, but I think it's important that we read the whole thing uh, because it, it's just an amazing uh, piece of writing that, we just, that just relates to what we're trying to say today, what we're trying to look at. He says this, The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become anti-world rhetoric, that is. That is an anti-world statement he makes there. Because what we say now is, I, who I am, that's it. I will stay as I am and I will just be who I am. C.S. Lewis doesn't agree because he's a Christian and he believes in the Bible. He says, There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christ, Christians, all different will still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different people that you and I were intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. How powerful is that statement? How anti the world is that statement? To say that, and to Christians as well, if you come to Christ, you cannot stay as you are. It's just not possible. It is not possible that receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, that our characteristics stay the same. Because we come to God because we are not what God wants us to be. We are broken. We are confused. We are lost. So when we come to him, he has this new person for us. The person who is not the old person, who is a new creation, not an old creation. How do we live this life of more of him and less of me? Less of me, more of him. How do we live that life today? It's going to continue for the rest of our lives. That's how it works. Sanctification. Each day in some small way, I must be able to be less of me and more of him.
more of what he has for me. So as we go through the Bible and understand the narrative that carries a great significance in our lives, we see the God of the Bible that we see at work, creating, judging, promising salvation, faithfully working out his plan of restoration. In understanding these aspects of God's plan throughout the Bible, what we should be in no doubt of is that the plan of salvation has massive implications for those who choose and are called to follow Jesus Christ. So over the next 12 months, we're going to be looking at three specific implications of how Scripture should impact our lives as disciples of Christ. Three quick points. Firstly, for our understanding. As a church who believe in the sanctity, power and truth of the word, we need to increase our biblical literacy. We'll say the word. Biblical literacy. That is to read the Bible and understand it more. You can come here every Sunday and you can hear me preach, but that will not be the complete journey that God has for each of us. We are to engage personally with God through his word. We must increase our awareness of what the Bible is telling us. Not because we need to be Bible big heads, but because it's important for us individually to grow in our relationship with God and build up our faith. Coming to church, yes, is part of that. But it won't help you over the rest of the week in that sense. You need, we need, I need to keep going back to God's word. I need to mature and move on to solids. I need to understand what God has got for me as the years go by. We need to move away from a growing, unhealthy relationship towards the Bible that promotes getting quick answers for difficult issues. I've no doubt you would have seen uh, the Gideon Bibles in hotels, and, and other Bibles do this as well, um, where they might have situations, emotions that you might be dealing with at, at the time, and say, if you're feeling anger, look at these verses. If you're feeling despair, look at these verses. Now that, that's fine, I don't knock that. But the Bible is more than some random bits of wisdom. The Bible is more than just these pockets of encouragement. The whole Bible is our whole life. As a Christian, how am I... How is my world being shaped by the Bible? How is it how I live is being shaped by the Word? Our difficulties in life can be better addressed if we understand the big story of the Bible. It's no use memorising Scripture or Scriptures if it doesn't lead to a bigger understanding of how the pieces of Scripture fit together. I'm amazed at those people that can reel off Scripture off the top of their head. But is it actually doing something in here? Is it changing behaviour? Is it changing hearts? Is it changing the mind? Because all it will be is just a Sunday school activity of memorising verses. It must become more than remembering stuff. (laughs) 
What's the second thing we're going to learn over these next 12 months? To form our worldview. This is to form a Christian worldview. That is to say that when we look at the world, we look <clears throat> through the lenses of Scripture. We need to look at the bigger biblical story and its plot points. God's creation, original sin, the plan of redemption. The biblical story should be central to the formation of our Christian worldview. We mustn't try to fit the Bible into a convenient space in our world, but instead must fit our world into the Bible. My world must become the Word. However imperfect and however many times I fail, but it must be my determination to do that. Each of us it must be. We need to immerse ourselves in it so we can learn how to live and think from the Bible's perspective. And as we allow the Bible to shape our worldview, so it will shape the way we view God, the way we view the world, and the way we view each other. God speaks about loving his people. To love him, you must love my people. The principle there is that we must immerse ourselves in what that is. What is love of God? Because the love of God is to love people. So if I don't love people, how do I love God? I'm not trying to trap anyone here. This is what God says. If you don't love my people, you don't love me. Paraphrasing. Look it up. It's there. The third, final thing, for shaping discipleship. Every one of us has a role in the unfolding plan of God's great plan for the world. We need to immerse ourselves. We need to get into the Word so that we can see the plan that God has. We need to gain a deep perspective of what is written in these pages so we're able to live from it. What, will come, what, what it will come is uh, an understanding that the world is not as it should be. We pray this, don't we? We pray of all the things that are broken in this world. And the Bible tells us that's the way things are because of what happened. The world is broken. But Christ died and rose again so that we would be in the world and not of it. We no longer comply with the way of the world, but we would follow the way of Christ. The story of the Bible should become our story. It should drive us to seek to live as God wanted and wants us to be. We sing the song at the start, I am who you say I am. I'm not who I say I am, which is the world now. I say who I am. And yet we just ignore this gracious God that says, but I've got so much a better version of you waiting for you to come and, and take, waiting to come and explore and to experience. It should impact every behaviour, every characteristic of ourselves to the point that we are constantly in communion with God, asking, how do I become less and God become more? 
every single situation. You don't have to go and find a room. You don't have to get on your knees and pray. You can pray in your head. You can shut your eyes in for five seconds and say, Lord, what must I do in this moment to become more of you and less of me? God is instantly accessible. Yes, reverence. Yes, coming to him with a contrite heart. Absolutely. But the Lord has made it so easy for us to access him. In a, in a brief second, we can just say, Lord, is this what you want me to do? At its most extremes, the Bible is a vision of God's perfect kingdom and man's imperfect sinful nature. But bridged by and rescued by God's love through grace and restoration through Jesus Christ. That's the amazing story, account of the Bible. So what is the challenge? I'm going to give you a challenge. <clears throat> and the challenge has slightly changed since I looked at this yesterday. I'm going to make it a bit easier on you. It's not for now. Uh, on the table you'll see these little um, bits of paper. Uh, and these are from Galatians. These are called the fruit, not plural, the fruit of the Spirit. One fruit that bears many characteristics. What's the challenge? The first step on this road to live in the principle of less of me and more of God and understanding the implications can be found in the fruit of the Spirit. Instead of making a pagan's New Year list of what things I should do and shouldn't do, because they're all legalistic, by the way, and we, we always fail at them because we're just terrible at, at it, mostly. I want to give you a hopefully more richer, biblical-aligned New Year's resolution list. On your bits of paper, you'll see the nine the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what I was originally going to do is, I, is ask you, which ones do you need to work on? And then I was going to kind of make it a little bit funny and trick you a little bit and say, ha-ha, it should have been all of them. And, and, and you're nodding, and that's great, because actually that means you were going to think that anyway, right? It's all of them. Good. So the Spirit has led me to tell me that you know that already. Brilliant. We don't need to go through that right now. However, what I am asking for all of us to do is how can I make this happen? How can I apply this in every single situation in my life. And let me tell you, this is not going to be one New Year's resolution list. This is like a rest of your life resolution list. Because this gets complex. When you think you have love nailed, you might be without peace. When you think you have joy nailed, you cannot forbear. You cannot bear people. 
When you think you have kindness done, maybe goodness is lacking. And then you have to look at it another way. Why can I not love? Maybe I cannot love because I don't have peace. Why can I not be kind? Because maybe I don't have faithfulness. All of these things are interlinked. And the reason why that is is because there's one fruit of the Spirit. Characteristics of one fruit. And so for the rest of our lives, not just for this study this year, we should all be challenged by this. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will be prompting you and pushing you and prodding you to say, was you joyful in that moment? Was you peaceful in that moment? Was you under self-control in that moment? Being a Christian is not simply about walking into church and going home. Church is like 10% of your journey. Your Christian life, my Christian life, is with God. And my love for him, I I come and do this here. I lead this church because I've been called to lead this church. You come to this church, hopefully, because you've been called to this church. But the church as a building, as a structure, does not define your relationship with God. It will not get you into heaven because you've ticked every week and come to church. Let's dispel those myths straight away. There are places in America where churches register and check you off every time you turn up for the Sunday service. They have records and records of your attendance in these mega churches, and I'm in despair because of it. Is this what church has boiled down to? That when you pass away, I can read from the front your great attendance on church every Sunday. Ah, and Peter came every single week. Wasn't he a great servant of the church? Was he? Are we? Coming to church every week is not going to define how great a servant you are. You'll be defined in your servanthood by how you serve Jesus. Whether that is in this place, whether that is outside, whether that is in your home, whether that is in your office, in your place of work, wherever that may be. How will every aspect of the Bible influence and live out through you? That is the challenge that we are given. Pray over these uh, characteristics. Don't rush to try and solve them. Don't rush to try and get them all perfect. Because this is about how God is trying to shape us. But we must have focus. And I hope this is helpful just in trying to focus our minds in what God has for us and wants us to be. And hopefully over these next 12 months we'll look at how the Bible can be lived by us not as an attachment to our lives, 
but that we fit our entire world into the Bible. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to say a blessing together. Lord, we want to thank you that we have the Word so easily in our grasp that we can pick it up and read any part of your Word that we can receive revelation, that we can be guided by your Holy Spirit in discerning what you want us to do and how you want us to live our lives. Lord, will you break us out of the traditional church mould that tells us that we are defined by attendance or we're defined by appearance. Lord, your church is more than that. Your church is more powerful than some school register. It is for the equipping and serving of the disciples of Jesus Christ. It is to share the message of the gospel to those who walk through the door who are yet to know you, Lord. And Lord, this is what this place should be. We thank you, Lord, that you give us grace in our failures, that we may not quite hit that all the time, that we might be slow to get that point. But Lord, we thank you that in those mistakes you sharpen us. In those mistakes you give us teaching, equipping us to do something better or different next time. So Lord, I pray that you'll open our hearts over this next year to the teaching of the Bible. That the word of truth is exactly what it says it is. The word of God. We thank you, Lord, that we have access to this powerful message of redemption and salvation. We thank you that we can share with those around us, those we encounter, that you are an awesome God, all-powerful, all-loving, who wants all to be saved. We thank you, Lord, that your heart of love is above our level and heart of love. We thank you that we can chase after the love of God. We thank you for the experience of being disciples. We thank you for the privilege of being disciples. Lord, we praise your name in this place. May you reign forevermore. Lead this church, Lord. Lead this church to where you want us to be. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen.